It has been a real pleasure and a blessing for Lorna and me to be with you during these last several days. We thank God for our fellowship. It's uh, opened our eyes to knowing you better and hope to encourage you in prayer. And we hope that we'll be able to stay in contact with you. So thank you very much indeed for this time of fellowship. For our final study, we turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. Verses 6 to 11. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 to 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Be firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion, forever and ever. Amen. This was a very worrying time for the young Christians to be in the faith. The middle of the first century. For Christians in the little churches of North Turkey in the early 60s of the first century, it was a very difficult, dangerous time. Year by year they were being harassed more and more frequently. In some places, it was moving into outright persecution. Paul, as Peter in chapter 4, verse 12, speaks of the fiery trial which is on the horizon. They're isolated. They're vulnerable. In the first verse of the letter, He writes of them as the elect exiles of the dispersion. Friends, to some extent, we can identify with these Christians. Because we're living at a time when our culture is stumbling further and further away from God. Turning away from the things which a hundred years ago were widely known. It's not easy. So Peter is writing to encourage them and to encourage us. Towards the end of the letter, chapter 5, he exhorts the elders in the first five verses to care for the flock. Then in verse 7, he exhorts the people 
to cast all your anxieties on God and to resist the devil verses 8 and 9 then in our text this morning he urges upon them to end end their lives he's he's ending his letter to them with mighty assurance we've been thinking this weekend about being called called by grace called to the saints and now this morning finally called to glory look at that verse verse 10 after you have suffered a little while the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore confirm strengthen and establish you he has called you to his eternal glory that is our subject this morning this is an appropriate theme surely for a final day of our conference which this evening will be coming to an end when will this group be together again will all of us meet together again we don't know we can't say but we do know that there is a place which the covenant God has promised in the very beginning to our father Abraham the land that I will show you and you and I if we're in Christ have been called to his eternal glory in Christ we'll be together there forevermore and I want us to look forward to this this morning called to glory under three headings our destiny our pathway and our companion first of all our destiny how does Peter describe it his eternal glory he's speaking of heaven of course various writers in the New Testament describe heaven in different ways the writer of Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1 a heavenly calling Paul eternal life to which you were called 1 Timothy 6.12 or again Paul says God calls you into his own kingdom and glory 1 Thessalonians 2.12 he's calling to us from heaven and he's calling us to heaven there are those two double elements in God's call to us Peter expands it memorably earlier in his letter chapter 1 verses 4 and 5 the inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time that's what he's speaking of here and what we're thinking of this morning that is the destiny of his people it's eternal 
And that means more than everlasting. It does mean everlasting. But it also means that it has the glory of the age to come. Of the consummation of the kingdom. Of eternal God. Eternal. And he says also it's glory. Eternal glory. This is, if you like, a summary of our heavenly life in Christ. Our souls will be made perfect in holiness. Our bodies will be transformed. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, bodies that are imperishable, powerful, spiritual. The whole material creation will be restored by God into a fresh creation. Paul says in Romans 8.21 set free from its bondage to decay. We read in Revelation 21 of the new heaven and the new earth. This is something of the glory which is for us. Unnumerable multitudes of redeemed people, hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of people delivered by Christ forever. Our brothers and sisters, we know them, we love them, we'll enjoy spending eternity in their presence. What a conference that that will be. And God himself outshining in his majesty. And as our pastor urged this morning from him, his holiness, his beauty. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And we shall worship this God. And we shall serve him. And we shall enjoy him forever and ever. That is our destiny for Christians. One full of glory. It's eternal. It's glory. And then, of course, supremely, it is eternal glory in Christ. In Christ all united with Christ because we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world chapter 1 verse 4 believing in Christ trusting, depending leaning on him believing because of Christ and what he did for us certain and secure in Christ and that, I think, is why heaven in the New Testament is so often defined in an unadorned, Christ-centered way. A few verses. John fourteen three, I will come again and take you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. 
John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am to see my glory. That's what he asks from his Father for his people. To be heaven. Luke gives us the Lord speaking, saying that it's with me in paradise. Luke 23:43. Paul writes of being with Christ, which is far better. Of being at home with the Lord. So then glory is Christ. For we're told of this city that the glory of God gives it light and its its lamp is the Lamb. And this Lamb is all the glory. For as we sing often from Psalm 16 in your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand our pleasures forevermore. This is what is ahead of us. This is our destiny. We're called to eternal glory. In ourselves, we deserve hell. But God has freely, lovingly given us heaven. That is the difference. That's what Peter is speaking and thinking of. At the end, God will not say to us, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire. Instead he will say, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world there we are there it is for us friends do we live in the light of this destiny perhaps you'll remember what Paul writes in Ephesians 4.1 walk in a matter worthy of calling to which you have been called are we preparing ourselves for eternal glory we were near it in the first read this morning 1 John 3 3 everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure do you and I delight that we're in Christ and that we're in Christ forever that he's bringing us to his presence to be with him and that those in Christ who have passed from this earth are now at the beginning of the time of glory do people outside Christ see us rejoicing with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory I wonder is there anyone here 
who's still not in Christ. That's a chasm. How terrible the destiny of such a person. What a contrast. Christ offers himself to you at this moment to change your destiny from hell to heaven. And you know what you must do. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's a glorious destiny. We could think of it more and more. But the journey to heaven is a strange one. And that brings us to our second point this morning. We were thinking first of all of our destiny, heaven. Now secondly, our pathway. After you have suffered for a little while, Peter writes. After you have suffered for a little while. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore you. That's the realism of the Bible. The Bible tells us that Christian life is not sentimental, it's not idealistic, it's not triumphalist. Here, Peter, as his brethren were, is bracingly honest. After you have suffered for a little while. That's what he writes about the Christian living. He sees face struggling, faces struggling, discouragement, wounds, hurt, heartbreak, weeping. Think of the psalmists. Again and again there are psalms that are full of sorrow and crying and doubt and questioning and crying to God. The Psalms are earthed in the fabric of what life really is. And we're not to tell people lies. We in our lives, past, present and future, we may have suffered. We may be suffering. We will suffer. After you have suffered for a little while. We need to think about that. We need to take it on board. And seek to pray it through. And friends, this is not some isolated reference. This is a theme which is pervasive, coming out again and again and again in the New Testament. John 16:33. In the world you will have tribulation. This is God speaking to us. 
Romans 8, 18. The sufferings of this present time. This present time is a time of suffering. Though they're linked with glory, they're the pathway to blessing. Why is that? Why is suffering the pathway to blessing? Why will you inevitably be in suffering if you're on your way to heaven? Why can we say that? The answer is very simple. Because of Christ, Jesus Christ is our example. And we are following him. And we don't always realize what that means. The Spirit of Christ in the prophets showed chapter 1 verse 11 predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. That's how they described the life in, in faith. The sufferings of Christ and, sub, and subsequent glory. Peter himself in the first verse of this chapter describes himself as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as partaker in glory that's going to be revealed. I'm a fellow elder, I witness the sufferings and I partake in the glory. The two are held together. It couldn't be clearer. For the, path, for the Christian, the pathway to glory is suffering. That's what God said. For the Christian, the pathway to glory is suffering. And that means, doesn't it, that suffering, no matter how unpleasant it is, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how heartbreaking, suffering is not a reason for doubting God's love. His son went through suffering. Suff suffering is not a reason for doubting our salvation. We're following the one in whom salvation came. We shouldn't let it confuse us. We shouldn't let it discourage us. As people easily do, they become discouraged through suffering. Paul, uh, Peter says in chapter 4 verse 12 here, lovely advice, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you to test you. Instead of us being upset by suffering, Peter's telling us that suffering is a mark of our being in Christ. It's an evidence of our salvation. Chapter 4, verse 13, Peter continues like this, But rejoice insofar as you share 
Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Rejoice when you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. My friends, we're not considering here what kinds of suffering we may face. But we're considering, the scripture tells us, an aspect of suffering which is peculiarly painful, but also particularly Christ-like. I mean by that, Peter, I think, is talking about innocent suffering when we have done nothing wrong. Innocent suffering when we have done nothing wrong. In fact, sometimes because we've done something right. And friends, Peter, and how much this warms our hearts, Peter places this firmly at the core of the Christian's calling. Suffering. Listen to chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. If, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the eyes of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you leading you an example so that you might follow in his steps. If you're suffering, rejoice because you're in the path of Christ. You're where he was on earth. To this you have been called. Suffering, in a sense, is what we have signed up for as a Christian what we're called to Bonhoeffer the German writer doesn't write very many sound things but he writes some good ones and he says when Christ calls a man he bids him come and die of course the world hates us who ever expected anything different but the hatred is something that leads us to deeper Christ likeness you remember perhaps how the Lord Jesus told us to respond blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake Rejoice and be glad. Peter says here in chapter 3 verse 9, Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called. In other words, what he's saying is that instead of turning believers into crybabies, Troubles should arouse our courage. Troubles should awaken our manhood, our womanhood. The pathway of the Christian 
is frequent suffering. But the destiny is glory. Let us all get that in our minds. And understand how in many ways we'll be living. One modern writer says, let us be glad to take hits on the way to the goal line. Bunyan put it differently. He tells us about Christian when he had come to the interpreter's house, the door of the palace, he calls it, in the Pilgrim's Progress. He says that Christian saw also in that doorway stood many at armour to keep it, being resolved to do those that would enter it what harm and mischief they could. No one would go through the door. They were frightened. At last, when everyone started back for fear of the armed men, Christian saw a man of a very stout countenance come up to the man that sat there to write, saying, Set down my name, sir. And he took the helmet and the sword, and he charged those standing in his way. And after he had given and received many wounds, he cut his way through them all and pressed forward into the palace. Set down my name, sir. I'm willing to stand in this. I'm willing to be with the people who suffer. After all, it's an encouraging contrast. Our text says, after you have suffered for a little while, eternal glory. And also this, as we conclude this point, our suffering shapes us for glory. Our suffering changes us eternally. I wrestled with that for a while and found it hard thinking, but when I did, it excited me. We're told of Jesus Christ that he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 2.18 He is able to help those who are being tempted. Why is he able to help? Is it because he is the infinite God? Yes, that's part of the answer. But that's not what the Lord says. He says because he himself has suffered when tempted. Jesus is able to help us in heaven, on earth, because he in heaven, when he was on earth, suffered being tempted. And that earthly suffering has left marks on him that enable him to help his brothers and sisters who are suffering also. The sufferings which Jesus experienced on earth equipped him for ministry in heaven. He took with him into heaven effects of what happened to him here. And friends, it's the same for us. 
Our suffering enriches us. Our suffering changes us, not just for time, but for eternity. We cannot understand, but all negatives will vanish in the life to come. And all the positive aspects of earthly life will carry over. It's encouraging. We make the pathway. Our destiny, our pathway, when we suffer, we're like Christ. And then finally, our companion. Our companion. The road to glory may be rough and steep, but we're not to travel alone. That makes a huge difference. In Hebrews 12:1, we're told that we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us run with endurance. On the road on which we walk towards heaven, there are many fellow believers on the road with us. Throughout history, in the past, in the future, in the present. Look at what he says in the previous verse, verse 9. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Other brothers and sisters all over the world are suffering. Christians have always suffered. Suffered in the past. Suffering at present. No doubt suffering in the future. Look at them. Think of them. Allow yourself to be strengthened by them. You're being asked to stand with those who, like you, are suffering. Some tribes of the Native Americans had a very interesting thing that they did, the, the warriors, the fighters. When a battle was coming up, the warrior would drive a stake into the ground at a certain point to drive it deep and then he would tie himself to the stake with a, a rope and what he was saying to his fellow tribe people was he wasn't going to run away he wasn't going to run away he was tying himself to the stake where he would fight for his lord for, for, his, for his case not for his lord but you see he was t I'm not going to run away and that's how we want to see each other saying it to us, our brothers and sisters. You know them, I know them. And they're saying, they would never say it in their words, but their lives, their lives, saying, I'm with Christ. I'm not going to run away. I will not retreat. How encouraging it is to have these companions in suffering But there's one more significant companion and that's God himself this epistle is full of God 
I was interested in it and started looking things up and looking at the books in the New Testament which have the most reference to God the book that has the most reference to God is 1 John chapter 1 sorry, 1 John 1 out of every 34 words in 1 John is God third is Romans one out of 46 words is Romans and second is this book 1 Peter once out of every 43 words it was a rather silly thing to do but it's showing in a way how he, he talks of God he talks of God he's always talking of God God who's always accompanied the covenant people in their journeying <laughs> The Lord had said in Genesis, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Genesis 28, 18. God, always with us. Always with us. Never leaving. Notice character in our, in our verse. The God of all grace electing us converting us forgiving us protecting us sustaining us keeping us grace grace for every one of his people every day in every circumstance in every need grace to live and grace to die God's with his people from the beginning to the end he's so kind to his people you may have seen in film I don't know what year it was but it was the uh, Olympics one year when they were held in London I think it was the early years of the 20th century something around 1906 or 1908 1908 and the, the marathon was being held and the, the, the runner who was winning the marathon ran into the ground where the people were waiting and he was staggering all over the place you may have seen him, he fell down and he couldn't get up and somebody came out from the crowd and lifted him up and helped him to walk across the line and he was disqualified because he shouldn't have been helped by anybody now our God is not in a situation like that God comes he puts his arm around you he lifts you up he helps you and you're able to go on in a situation that you may find very difficult you can't keep it you're falling, it's hard but God's arms are around you and he's able to hold you up that then you may go on. First Peter five nine, He will restore you. He will comfort you. He will strengthen you. He will establish you. Each of those words would be worth a study of its own. In our lives, He fixes what is broken. 
in our lives, He steadies us when we're wobbling. In our lives, He pours new energy into us when we're exhausted. In our lives, He serves as our foundation and our rock when we begin to sink. Think of His initiative. The one who has called you. Who has called you. Taking it back to the very beginning. He called us. The security of the reformed faith. As we come towards the end of our lives, we find it more and more solid and restful and secure. It's God's idea. It's God's purpose. It's God's responsibility. He himself will restore us. This call is something that lifts us up to joy. Those whom he called, he also glorified. He would lose more than I would, one man said, if we were to fall. How often we sing, Thou holdest me by my right hand. Two days ago we began by referring to the end of the conference the element of sadness. It's a bit like the end of life in some ways. But for the Christian they are both swallowed up in a swelling joy. Friends, every day we're coming near to glory. Every day we're approaching everlasting reunion with those we love. Every day we're coming nearer to Jesus. Psalm 84, verse 12. I think we sang it. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. And after he has set this out, the Apostle Peter, as it were, closes the epistle in verse 11. He then puts some greetings after it. To him be the dominion forever and ever. And we should rejoice that we are called to glory and that we'll be brought to glory and that we live in glory forever before God. Jude puts it this way Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Saviour through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory majesty dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.